you want to be happy? Silly question, right? Of course. Are you happy? Uh, That's a little bit tougher question to answer. That requires a little bit of a pause. Depends on what you mean by that, right? It depends on the definition. You need to have some qualifiers for a question like that. I mean, right this moment, in general, perhaps we better start somewhere else than those off-the-wall questions. What is happiness? Maybe if we can get an answer there, we can start to answer some of these other questions. How is it defined? Well, doesn't it look different to everyone? Your definition could differ from mine. After all, what makes you happy may not make me happy. But one thing's probably for sure. Each person should just do whatever makes them happy. Have you heard that before? Maybe you've heard it in a slightly different term. A little more truncated, a little more modern. You do you. There was a streaming series not too long ago that had as its premise to help you organize and get rid of all of that clutter and things in your life that maybe you don't need by asking when you're going through that stuff, and spring might be a good time where we probably are, it challenged us to ask a question as we're going through those objects and those things in that clutter and ask if it sparks joy. Now, frankly, I have no thoughts on whether that's a good way to organize or declutter your life. I'm not here to comment on anything like that. Maybe a very good way for you to get rid of some things. But it seems this idea, and it's not new with that series, it's definitely not new with our culture, it's not a modern ideal, but it seems like it has continued on in our culture to extend not just to things or objects that we might own, but in some cases to relationships we might have. Have we ever heard of getting rid of those toxic people in your life? You know, those people who bring you down, who, who cause you to think about things too much or, or maybe make you feel uncomfortable. Why not just cut them out? Who needs that negativity? Who needs somebody telling you what to do or even challenging your idea of happiness? A book published by a Cornell professor in 2020 estimated some 67 million Americans, and I understand we're in Canada, but I think there's some correlation. Some 67 million Americans were estranged from their families. With COVID having happened since then, and all of the reasonable politics and differences of opinion that people have had around that, I'm sure the situation has much improved. I hope you sense my sarcasm. In fact, Canadian therapists report a 
large influx in the last few years of parents reaching out for help and counsel because they have lost touch or been cut off from their adult children for one reason or another in an effort to get rid of those things that make them unhappy. It seems that the custom-tailored social media bubbles that we have curated online to only see what we want to see and only talk to who we want to talk to has begun to find its way outside of the on life, online life and into our real life and to the relationships that exist there. But certainly... As we have all seen, by eliminating these negative things and these negative thoughts and these negative people from our life and doing what makes us happy, happiness has blossomed and thrived in our culture. Surely that's the result. Surely that is evident in everything we see around us. Happiness is on the rise. He says again sarcastically, Because for all of that talk about finding happiness and finding positivity and getting rid of those things that make us uncomfortable or that challenge us, it seems the world has not gotten happier. In fact, many ways it has gotten more difficult, more challenging. Well, if it's not having the right relationships and it's not having the right things, perhaps we just need more of those things, right? This is the Lotto 649 commercial. If you had a boat and a car and a house, then you'll be happy. And yet here we are in one of the wealthiest nations, continually rated as one of the best nations on earth to live in, The fastest growing health problems that we face in Canada are centered around addiction, substance abuse, depression, anxiety, and other mental health problems. Something isn't right with the philosophy. Something isn't working. In fact, Forbes identified this desire in pursuit of happiness as a happiness paradox. In their research, they showed that the more we pursue happiness as an object itself, the more miserable and disappointed we feel. What are we to do? Well, since we're in a church, I'm going to make an assumption here that all of us are interested and not necessarily looking at what a society or a culture or a nation defines as happiness. I trust we are here to look at a biblical and a scriptural definition of happiness and let that guide our ideals. It may surprise you to know, however, that the term happy is found only eight times in your ESV translation, if that's what you have today. The term happiness, only twice. Not looking good. Does the Bible have nothing to say about happiness? 
does God not have happiness for his people in mind? Does God want us to be happy? Now, let me just pause here. Some of you, before I get too far, talking about a happy life, are going to think I'm about to take a left turn and go into health and wealth and prosperity gospel. So relax. We'll be okay. I'm not headed in that direction. But that is sometimes how it's presented in some churches and some denominations. Of course, God wants you to be happy. And the way he shows you to be happy, the way for you to be happy is to experience wealth and prosperity and health in your life. And if you're in a quip class this morning, you find out that's not the way it works. We talked about this. And so if it can't be found in a prosperity gospel, what are we to do? Well, you may not find the term happiness scattered much in Scripture, but you will find another term that I think not only equals it, but has a much deeper meaning, a much broader stretch, and a much weightier term. The term that might correlate better for us who follow God and who have decided to follow the Scripture, it's probably not happy, it's blessed. The Bible does use that term quite a bit. But it doesn't use it in the same way our culture often uses it. And it doesn't come with the same attachments or the same pursuits as what the world says it will. And that's a good thing. So much of Scripture runs countercultural to everything that this fallen world presents to us as what to pursue. And what we will see as we look at the term blessed and we look at a blessed life, is that it's probably much different than any of the commercials or any of the marketing or any of the advertising that we've seen and been encouraged to buy into. With this in mind, we're going to go to perhaps the most famous sermon ever preached. It's the first of Jesus' sermons that we encounter in the New Testament. In it, Jesus lays out what a happy or blessed life, what a happy or blessed individual looks like. You all are already turning your pages. In this, he shows us the character of those who live a blessed life, a happy life, and how they have come to find this. And what we're going to find in this passage shouldn't surprise us, but might. It certainly would have surprised any of those who were sitting there in Jesus' audience as he began to teach it. Because rather than lottery-winning dreams of stretching out on a sunny beach without a care in the world and with, you know, retirement package in hand and, you know, bags of money to indulge our every whim and to experience everything, we find something quite different from these shallow satisfactions 
and passing fancies. If you're not there already, Matthew chapter 5. This is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. In it, we see Jesus begin to lay out for us who are a part of the kingdom and what is their character and what is their behavior. Verse 1 begins this, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. When he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets that were before you. Let's bow for a quick word of prayer as we go into this scripture passage. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and your kindness to us in Christ. God, I pray that you would prepare our hearts for what you might have for your, from your word. Lord, I know that apart from your spirit, from your word, all of this is vain. All of this has no eternal impact. So I pray, guide our thoughts, guide our hearts. May they be directed towards you. Lord, anything that is said that is unhelpful, Lord, I pray that you would make it quickly forgotten laid at my feet. Lord, anything that is helpful and encouraging, I pray that you would receive all glory and honor and praise for it. Lord, we come to you hungry to receive what you have for us. May it be impactful and cause us to love you more and to serve you better. In Jesus' name, amen. We come across this term, come across this passage. I'm not going to pretend that we can tackle this all In one sitting, we're not going to get very far. I'm just going to foreshadow that for you. So lest you think we're going to try and get through 13 or 14 verses of Matthew chapter 5, relax. We're going to start with just one, maybe two if we're lucky. But just to kind of set the pattern for us here and help us as we begin to look at this sermon It's helpful, listening to a passage by Charles Spurgeon, written on this, and in his explanation on this passage, specifically these passages surrounding verses 3 through 12, what we would call the Beatitudes. Beatitudes, you might have heard that before. It's from a Latin term. We look at the definition in the dictionary. Beatitude can be uh, defined as utmost bliss, greatest joy, 
utmost happiness. There's other ways, I'm sure, and other uh, synonyms we could use, but that's essentially what this is. And so these, this passage, commonly known as the Beatitudes, lays out the character of those who are in the kingdom and the blessed life, the happy life, the bliss that they enjoy, how they have enjoyed it, and how they live it. And Spurgeon used this example of a ladder. His thesis, and I would agree with it, um, is that these beatitudes don't appear haphazardly. They aren't just thrown in, you know, and jumbled together. That each of these beatitudes builds on one another, flows from one another, and presents a full picture of this blessed, this happy life. And it begins, like I said, not how we would expect. I imagine the jaws dropping as he's sitting there on the mountain, his disciples are kind of gathered around him, and you probably have an audience further out down the hill of that meadow, and Jesus just begins to speak, and, and you know, everybody I'm sure is attentive to what this great rabbi is going to say, and he begins by saying, blessed, happy are the rich. Those who have it easy, the wealthy, the healthy, the wise. I mean, that's what we're all expecting. Can't prove it, but if it were me, would have probably paused for effect there. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Imagine everyone did a double take. Excuse me, what? I thought he said poor. I must have misheard. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. I'm pretty sure he means rich. I'm pretty sure he's looking at all those who are who have made it in life and who are experiencing all the happiness that me, uh, that I want to enjoy and that I envy in them. I'm sure he must have made a mistake, but no. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. As Spurgeon points out, it's a good thing he starts at such a low rung. If he started at the pure in heart, we would have been lost before we ever started. We would have been way off track and given up. But he starts where every heart that wants a blessed and happy, fruitful life must start. And that is with a poor in spirit attitude. A poor in spirit Mindset. I will point out that these are not description, these, that these are descriptions, not commands. Because if we're not careful, it's very easy to be tempted to turn the Beatitudes, to turn these into a step by step process. Because we're all legalists at heart and we all want some self help. And so it's very easy for us to go to the Beatitudes and say, well, step one, do this. Step two, do this. Step three, do this. And hey, by the end of step eight, you'll have finished the program and you're in heaven. It's not how this is presented. This is not a list of commands. This is a list of characteristics. It's a list of character of those who are in the kingdom and who enjoy a blessed life. And those who inherit the kingdom, whose kingdom, who belong to the kingdom, have an attitude of being poor in spirit. 
wonder if that is where your search for happiness begins. <laughs> Certainly not where the world starts its search. But as long as we seek happiness in anything aside from what Christ offers us and how Christ directs us, we will find not happiness, but disappointment and disaster and tragedy. Spurgeon says the sermon here begins, this ladder starts where the law ends. You understand the law, those Ten Commandments, those commands that God gave to the people of Israel to follow, and that list that, frankly, just reminds us of how far we are fallen and how little we can live up to them, leaves us in a pretty destitute state. Those of you who have studied Scripture and have read, and those of us who have seen all that God did with his people, the Jews and Israel, see how time and time again the law was crushing. The law was defeating. The law was discouraging because none could keep it. No matter how hard they tried, no matter how hard they worked, no matter how good they tried to behave, they always fell short. They always failed, and it left them empty. The kingdom begins where the law ends. Grace begins where the law ends. Romans 3.20 reminds us, By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law has done its purpose when it shows us our sin, but it can take us no further. And so the Beatitudes begin where the law leaves us. The law leaves us devastated, broken, and despairing of any hope in trusting in our own good works and righteousness. It should help us make sure that we don't turn these into that step-by-step formula. Leave off your good works as you enter this and understand that the poor in spirit have recognized First and foremost, their works, their efforts, all of those things that they have done in their sinful flesh count for nothing. They have not earned any of God's favor. They have not earned any salvation merit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What does Jesus mean by this? Jesus just mean the poor, right? So if you're broke, you're impoverished, aren't you happy? Clearly, that's not what he means when he talks about being poor in spirit. He doesn't mean simply the financially poor. Scripture has a lot to say about money and those who are wealthy and those who are poor. There's lots of passages that deal with money and our attitude towards it. But while, certain, while Jesus certainly had many poor people who followed him, he had many rich who followed him as well. He did not condemn them for their wealth. He did warn them about loving their money and did encourage them to be generous and not to trust in their wealth. But wealth itself was not meritorious or not. So he's not speaking here of simply the poor financially. Otherwise, 
In this church, some of us would say we're the happiest people on earth. But what Jesus is speaking about and to is those who have recognized not their financial poverty, but their spiritual poverty. The poor in spirit. These are those individuals who have recognized their own spiritual bankruptcy. Nothing to contribute, nothing to offer. These are those who have left off any claim to self-reliance, any claim to pride, any claim to achievement. They've recognized that really, deep down, at the end of it all, they are hopeless, helpless, sinful beggars in desperate need of deliverance and grace. This is the beginning of happiness. Not what we expect. Not what we're sold. But it is the beginning of experience in blessing and peace and contentment here on earth and eternally with God in heaven. This idea, this this term that is translated poor for us, comes from a Greek word that carries with it this idea. It's hard for us to put in maybe a modern setting um, because that culture would have had people, I mean, we think we see poor people here in Canada uh, and nothing like what the poor experience across the world and even what would have been experienced in in Jesus' day. But it has this idea of a person, a beggar, uh, someone who's completely bereft of any possessions, this beggar who's ragged and dirty and carries with it this idea of somebody who is so beggarly that when they beg, they're kind of half-cringing, crouching. It's, you know, it's different. You know, we, we've, we've passed this. Try, again, you forgive me if the analogy is not very good because it's difficult. Uh, but, you know, we've all passed those... Uh, you know, we pass the, the buskers, right, or the people who are performing on the street, and, you know, they've got their guitar or their hat there and pass by, and, hey, you're playing a good song. Sure, I'll drop a few coins, and you sound good. you got some talent, right? Well, they've earned a little bit of their, you know, even though it's not necessarily a formal employment, they've earned some recognition. So it's not that. And then we might look, and maybe we've passed somebody on the street or driven by somebody who's standing at a stop line holding out a sign. Hey, you know, uh, you know, I'm a veteran. You know, help out a veteran or help out somebody who did this or, you know, I used to be this and I lost my job. And you might think, well, you know, out of gratitude for the service they gave to the country or out of gratitude for some of the things or because of their age, maybe I should contribute and help that person out. This is not the verb, the term that Jesus is using when he's talking about this poor. This poor person is the level below. This poor person can't point to anything that they used to do, any skill that they can now perform, anything in themselves that would cause you to have pity on them except the fact that they are destitute. This is the idea of the poor in spirit. And this is the conclusion that before we can experience any blessedness of mercy and forgiveness and acceptance before God, we must come to. For who can be saved 
that doesn't need saving. And so when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, what he's saying is, blessed are those to whom God has shown their spiritual poverty too, and they have recognized their need and abandoned their self-reliance and thrown themselves on the mercy of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit. There is no entrance to the kingdom without this approach. Anything that we have achieved, anything that we are, must be left behind. And we must recognize our own sinful state. It's throughout Scripture, Romans 3 reminds us that none is righteous, no, not one. Isaiah 64, often quoted, we've all become like one who is unclean. All our righteous deeds are polluted garments. The very best of what we have accomplished in this life, apart from God, is worthless rags, polluted garments. It accomplishes nothing salvific or eternal for us. Those of you who are here this morning and you desire happiness, you desire blessedness, you desire fruitfulness in your life, you want it to count for something. Have you come to that conclusion yet? There can be no deliverance. There can be no salvation if we do not recognize our own spiritual poverty. Ephesians 2.9 tells us that salvation is not a result of works so that no one can boast. God has designed the gospel to be wholly his work for which he receives all glory for. So let's just put an end to it here and now. You cannot be good enough. You cannot be smart enough. You cannot behave enough to merit salvation. So why continue to do it? Why continue to press on in your own strength to try and earn what you cannot achieve? Has it been very happy? Those of you who are in the throes of your sin and wondering if you should commit your life to Christ, and you're like, but I have to give up this. You may, yes. What are you really giving up? How has it made you happy? How has it fulfilled you? How can it somehow fill you enough to make all of an eternity separated from God worth it? It can't. It can't. But blessed, happy are those to whom God has revealed his glory to to whom God has shown and opened their eyes to their own sinful state and their own need. Think about this. When God reveals his glory, what is the reaction of man? You might be able to look at the person next to you and say, I'm better than them. You can certainly look up here if you can't look at the person next to you and say you're better than them. The standard is not them, it is not me, it is God. 
It is perfect holiness. And when confronted with God's perfect holiness, what did Isaiah do? Probably the most righteous person in Israel at that time, a prophet of God. Preaching on behalf of God, delivering the message to God's uh, rebellious people. And yet, when he sees the glory of God, he sees him high and lifted up in the temple, he falls on his face and cries out, Woe is me! I'm undone. When David is given the wonderful promise that the Messiah would come through his line, all that David had achieved in his life, the slaying of Goliath, the victories on the battlefield, the you know acclaim and the riches that he accumulated as a king, all of that seemed to be nothing as he walked into the temple, kneeled before the ark and sat in silence, pondering, God, who am I that you would bless me? It's Peter, who when trying to catch fish and when seeing Christ's miraculous power, falls to his knees in a boat, cries, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. There is no comparison when we compare ourselves to God. We all fall short. And in his goodness, he reveals his glory, shows us our need And we begin to understand what he can give us in salvation. This comes as a result of God working in our heart, drawing us to himself, helping us see the beauty of Christ. It's only when we're at the bottom that we can see Christ as glorious. It's why so many people struggle coming to Christ in the first place, because they've got all these things filling their mind and filling their Their lives, they don't need Jesus, but when we've reached the bottom and we see what we really are, he is so precious. He is so attractive. He is so good and kind, and we can cast ourselves on him. You say, Jared, this has not been a very happy sermon so far. I'm not feeling a whole lot better. Well, there is a part two to verse three. Because blessed are the poor in spirit, for they remain destitute and sad and despondent? No. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They are given a place in the kingdom. This is God's goodness to us, in that while we are weak and lowly and can do nothing to save ourselves, yet God in his mercy, as Titus 3, 5 would put it, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, God takes those with that are poor in spirit, he gives them the sight to see, he reveals their lowliness, and then he quickens them with life eternal. And so Romans 4, 7 can say, blessed or happy are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed or happy 
is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Who is the happy person in this world? Who is the blessed person? Not the one with all the wealth, not the one with all the things, not the one with all the friends and relationships and things that will pacify them. No, the blessed, the happy person is the one who is forgiven, whose sins are covered, and who the Lord does not count sin against any longer. That is only those who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ and ushered into his kingdom. So for those who have not yet come to Christ, this is the plea. Will you see yourself as you truly are? And will you abandon your self-reliance? And will you throw yourself on the mercy of Christ? And the good news of the gospel is that that is the promise of God. That as he reveals his glory and shows you your sin, and as we repent of our sin, he saves, he hears, he redeems, he forgives. And for all of us who have come to Christ, that was a great sermon. Glad it applies to someone else. But I wonder if the blessed and happy life doesn't simply begin with a mindset of being poor in spirit. But if it continues throughout our Christian walk in everyday life, spoiler alert, it does. The mindset that brings us to salvation is the mindset that accompanies us throughout our Christian walk. John 15, Jesus speaking to his disciples, talking about the vine Who is the vine? Us? Nope. Christ. We are the branches. And the branch cannot bear fruit unless it abides in the vine. And so all of those branches, all of us who are the branches, who exhibit fruit of the Spirit and who enjoy achievement and success in the Christian walk of sanctification and in our witness... Is it because of what we have done and what we have accomplished? No. It's a result of God's work in us as we stay attached to the vine. Paul pointed out that though he was amongst the greatest of the apostles, though he had accomplished more and done more to start churches and to evangelize the world than any of the other apostles, yet he named himself the chief of sinners. And all of the accomplishments that he could count on or could look at, he had counted as worthless. What spiritual success have you achieved that was not attained solely by God's grace? The answer is none, in case you're wondering. Can you claim to have achieved your sanctification? Can you claim to have achieved and convinced some person to accept Christ because of your cleverness, your understanding of the gospel? No. The fact is, is the poor in spirit recognize that we brought nothing to earn us the kingdom and anything that we produce in the kingdom and for the kingdom is simply a result of God's goodness and grace. 
as he continues to work in us his will for his glory. And so this is a pattern that doesn't go away, that doesn't just start us out on the path. It is the pattern and the character of those who now walk with Christ years and years and years after they have given their life to him. Philippians tell us that we're to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, but it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So we take no more glory for our sanctification than we could for our justification. It's why John Newton, the end of his life as he got older, said, although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, present tense, and Christ is a great Savior. This is the attitude that sustains us in our Christian walk. We can't at any point, as we've walked with God, say, all right, God, I got this one. You can sit this one out. Because every single day, as we even look at the the prayer of our Lord, the model prayer asks us to pray for daily bread and to deliver us from temptation. This is something that each and every day we come to Christ and we say, I still am unworthy. I am not able to live this blessed life on my own. I cannot accomplish all that you have commanded and all that you desire me to be in my own strength. I need your spirit fullness. I need your word to speak to me. I need you to deliver me from temptation and to provide and to sustain me. This is the attitude of those who come to Christ and those who are in the kingdom as they walk with Christ. So Christian, have you stumbled along the way? Have you taken pride or taken credit for what God is doing in your life? Have you looked at all that God has brought, all the fruitfulness, all the Uh, progress that you've made in sin and thought, wow, I've come so far? Or do you daily thank God for his goodness in your life and for allowing you to accomplish anything of value in his kingdom? Christian, have you looked for fulfillment in things that cannot bring happiness? You who have come to Christ, have you fallen for the trappings and the temptations of this world that say Christ is not enough alone? Have this too. Look to this for your satisfaction in life. Look to relationship. Look to friendship. Look to circumstance. Look to wealth. Those things can provide happiness. Have you been tempted in that way? Have you fallen for that trap? I encourage you, abandon that. Confess your neediness for God and lean into him. Lean on him for all that he would do for you. There's a hymn by August Toplady, Rock of Ages. It's one of my favorites. It says this, Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, but thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. And for many who have not come to Christ, this is our cry. 
Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. For those who have come to know Christ, who are his children, that is still our statement this morning. That nothing in our hands we bring. Simply to his cross we still cling daily. The next Beatitudes, and we won't get there, we'll wrap it with this. The next Beatitudes flow out of this. Next time we have that opportunity, we'll circle back to this. But close with this. I think it illustrates for us as well what the hymn has done for us. William Carey, often known as the father of modern missions, devoted much of his life to mission work in India and for the spread of the gospel there. Many have been inspired to give their life in mission work because of the example that he set. He devoted his life to preaching the gospel and even translating the scriptures so that those in India could have the Bible in their own native language. And all that he accomplished and all that he has become a model for for those who would serve God on the mission field On his tombstone, he has carved this epitaph. A wretched, poor, and helpless worm, on thy kind arms I fall. That is the attitude with which we approach salvation. It's the attitude in which we approach our daily walk with Christ. And I trust you examine your heart this morning and see what have you looked for happiness in Have you come to the knowledge of who you are? And do you cast yourself on him? Because happiness is found when we stop striving for our own glory and when we find rest and peace and contentment on letting him increase and us decrease. Let's pray. God, we're so grateful for the impact of your word. We stand unworthy of your goodness and your grace. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who is relying on their own behavior, who is looking to compare themselves to others, who looks at their own good deeds and tries to justify themselves, I pray that you would open their blind eyes to their sinful state, their utter depravity, their spiritual bankruptcy, and I pray that you would show them your great and glorious grace and save them. I pray that they would cry out for forgiveness and for mercy. And God, we trust that when they do so, you are faithful to fulfill your promise, to hear those who call upon you and to answer them and to give to them eternal life. So I pray you would do that work this morning, Lord. If there are believers who have stumbled in their sanctification or who have come to a place of complacency in their life where they are relying on their own behaviors, the fact that they have kicked certain addictions or or conquered certain sins or maybe even enjoyed a, a degree of success in the Christian walk and notoriety, I pray that they would not look to those things and trust in those things, but Lord, they would recognize that those things are all a byproduct of your work in them. And that any that anything we accomplish, we would be careful to give you praise and glory for. God, please increase your kingdom. Increase our love for you. Increase our devotion and our dependence on you. 
Help us not to trust in our own strength. Guide us, we pray. In Jesus' precious name, amen.